Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi. Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Yusuf. Good morning, listeners. And good morning, Michael Sheikh. Good morning, Robert. And welcome, Michael. We have our... Uh, Friend and uh, esteemed author, commentator, back. Thank you. Good to be back. Now, what are we going to talk about today, guys? Well, uh, sounds like we have uh, important topics to discuss. Of course, the seventieth anniversary of Nakba is hitting us soon, and we will uh, unpack that uh, memory. Uh, also, uh, I think the embassy issue. Uh, as we are heading towards the anniversary. Uh, the American and also embassy. the Americans are planning to open it in another provocative, symbolic uh, gesture. Uh, and we might also touch on uh, the uh, return uh, marches in Gaza. And uh, maybe if time allows, Yarmouk. If we are talking about the 70th anniversary of Nakba, to, let's say, uh, a group of audience who know very little about Nakba. Where do you start? Okay, well, the date for the Nakba is May 15, 1948. Hmm. That's the day after Israel declared independence and when the Palestinians considered they lost most of their homeland. Essentially, they were the indigenous population of Palestine, but the United Nations had decided to turn Palestine into a Jewish state. In order for that to happen, the non-Jewish population had to be driven out. And that's exactly what happened. It was a campaign of textbook ethnic cleansing involving massacres, house demolitions, and all kinds of atrocities to make the civilians flee and then preventing them from coming back. So, I mean, that's 70 years ago. And there's been a lot of other catastrophes since then. There was... um. Um, ethnic cleansing following 1948, as Israel pushed Palestinians out of Israel some more, especially um, in places like Ascalon and the Negev Desert and places like that, pushed them into refugee camps above <coughs> the borders. In 1967, they cleared the Latrun salient and they cleared parts of East Jerusalem and the Jordan Valley. The point I would make, though, is Palestinians call it the ongoing Nakba, mm. because even as we're sitting here today, Israeli bulldozers in the West Bank are coming back again and again to Palestinian communities in the Jordan Valley, in the South Hebron Hills, 
around Jerusalem. First they will destroy the homes. Then they will destroy the shacks the Palestinians have built. Then they will destroy the plastic tents that have been given to them by foreign aid organizations. They'll destroy the animal pens. They'll destroy the schools, the kindergartens that the people have built by themselves, all in areas earmarked for future Jewish colonization. So, so, you know, it's not like there was a catastrophe in 1948 and that began the Palestinian refugee camps. They are new Palestinians today that have been driven out of their homes Mm. and into refugee camps around the West Bank because they simply cannot hold on. I want to give two examples on this, uh, Michael and Robert. The first example is Al-Araqib village in the Negev Negev, uh, desert, a neighborhood that is considered by Israel as unrecognized, which means that it does not appear on maps, it does not appear on Google Maps, it does not appear on street signs. And the people of Al-Araqib village are the Bedouins. And these people are actually, uh, let me remind you, they are citizens of Israel. They hold Israeli passports. Nevertheless, they are the wrong citizens of Israel, meaning the non-Jewish citizens of Israel. And that's why they keep getting their village destroyed over and over again. And in 2012 only, the village was destroyed and rebuilt rebuilt more than 50 times. I actually went to one of those villages and spent time with them. Mm. Um, and it's amazing because it is an actual village. I mean, it's very primitive, but there are real people living there wanting to survive. Mm. And the fact that quite often it's either settlers or the soldiers <coughs> will come and actually destroy it. Yep. Uh, and unfortunately, these days they have the drones that fly <coughs> over and anything that's been improved is deemed illegal as well. Mm. And if they actually do that, if they actually improve it, the whole place will be demolished. Yeah. And they can actually be thrown in jail for it. And, and the other, very, the other example I want to give is in Jerusalem, where uh, the authorities, uh, due to different reasons, sometimes not giving license to build or renovate the place, uh, they issue an order of demolition. Not even that your house will be destroyed. You have to do it yourself at your mm. own cost. So this is to go very far in provoking, to go very far in trying to humiliate the Palestinian spirit, to try to break the spirit, but it is not happening. The Palestinians seem to be holding to their spirit of resistance and spirit of uh, steadfastness. And this happened in Australia as well in the 19th in the 19th century of pushing the indigenous population into the background as a settler population builds its cities on top of them and things like that. And in the obvious conclusion of this process is in today's Gaza Strip, a tiny little Palestinian ghetto stranded between the Nakab Desert and the Mediterranean Sea. The, the water's not fit to drink because of overpopulation and Israeli bombardment of public infrastructure. Half the population doesn't have enough to eat. Just, just on, on the, yeah. I was going to say, just when the, the last Gaza strike, the Israelis obviously, they targeted the hospitals, the water tanks, the electricity places. They did this on purpose. Yeah. And that's why Gaza is today heading to that uninhabitable land. Dysfunctional. Yeah, so, mm. yeah, yeah. And you, you, that is colonialism 101. Essentially, if you can't kill off the population, force them into a small space where they're bottled up and out of sight. It happens a lot. I, I think, you know, if there was a uh, an American um, writer called Ben Ehrenreich, and he talked about his experience in Hebron. He said, Hebron is the most horrible part of the West Bank. It's everything that's wrong with the West Bank distilled 
into a thick brown paste. But he said, you know, if you look at Palestine, it's the rest of the world as well. Mm. You know, there's Palestine in Nauru, in Manus, in the yeah. border wall that Trump is building to keep Honduran people out, even as he destabilizes their homeland and things like that. They are unwanted populations everywhere, whether it's Burma, Palestine, Australia, who are forced into these little ghettos where, where, they're, where they're bottled up, where they can't resist anymore. They're out of sight, out of mind. I just wanted to go back to the book you were talking about because you and I were talking beforehand, and it's the Ben Enright's book, which is a fantastic book. Uh, was it Return to the Spring? The Way to the, the Spring. The Way to the Spring. Yeah. Uh, and you were saying that uh, he explained some of the – he was talking about Basim Tamimi and mm. the treatment that he had received, but yet they're still so strong. Just give us a, a couple of minutes on the, the biggest bits that you took out of this book. And it's a book that I recommend, highly recommend to people. I read it a few years ago, and it's a book where you learn, but you have an emotional journey with these particular people. Yeah, so, yeah. Look, I always think that I'm jaded. I know what there is to know about Palestine. But I was quite upset after having read it because it's the day-to-day violence that Palestinians endured. Like this man, Bassam, you know, his daughter, um, Ahed Tamimi, has achieved fame for slapping that soldier and she's in jail now for it. That's his daughter. But, you know, he was shaken so violently by the Israelis under interrog- while he was interrogated, perfectly legally, by the way, in Israel, to shake a Palestinian like that, that he um, actually had brain trauma and he almost died. His sister, when she went to visit her son in, um, Israel, uh, in, in prison, was pushed down the stairs by an Israeli soldier and she died. So His, she died at the court. At the court. At the court. Yeah. Pushed down the stairs. Nothing happened to the guy who pushed no. her down. His brother-in-law um, was shot dead in a yeah. nonviolent protest. His wife was shot through the leg and her limb was shattered. And it just gives you uh, uh, just ordinary people and that daily violence and humiliation inflict upon them, especially when they try to non-violently mobilise. Mm. And it's just horrific. And um, the, the, the thing that you're left with in the end is how do they keep going? Why don't they become filled with hatred? And I know people say, ah, yeah. oh, Palestinians, they're brought up to hate. They're not brought up to hate. But if anybody has a right to hate, it's them. And Luckily, even, most of them don't. And we are the ones who are accused by American media and American policy of spreading hate by simply, especially when the PA pays the salary of imprisoned Palestinians and this is funding terrorists or, or things like that, or even yeah. our textbooks. I, I want to quickly mention the five legal systems that Israel imposed on the Palestinians around the world, and maybe we can take one minute on every uh, system. The first system was imposing a siege on the people of Gaza, and you have mentioned Gaza. The second system is direct military occupation of the people, the people of West Bank. Can we give a quick uh, uh, briefing of what occupation means? Okay, when you go to the West Bank, then you see apartheid in its purest form because you've literally got two populations almost living on top of each other, you know, just next door almost, and um, with two different legal systems driving. um, The Jews have special bypass roads which are paved and straight and beautiful. The Palestinians have to go along back roads which are tracks. There's checkpoints everywhere. You know, Israel rules the West Bank through a regime of checkpoints, torture chambers, assassinations, roadblocks, and close military 
yeah, um, concrete bunkers, concrete walls, enclosed military zones. And you see it in its starkest form there. It's not as bad as Gaza in terms of the um, actual hunger and shortage of water, but you, you actually see, you know, these... Restriction um, of movement. Yeah, perfectly green lawns and full swimming pools right next to a place where there's no water at all. Yeah. And you can see the first world and third world, and it's a perfect dividing line. So that's the direct military occupation of the West Bank. Mm. And the third system is the situation of the city of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem seems to have a situation on its own. So maybe also talk to us about Jerusalem. What makes Jerusalem different from the rest of West Bank? Well, technically, Israel has annexed it already into um, uh, um, its country, where the West Bank it hasn't. So, I mean, their main preoccupation there is to Judaize the city, and that means keep the Palestinian population below 30%. It's not currently below 30%, but they're doing everything they can to drive the Palestinians out. Um, so a whole list, you know, like um, not building enough classrooms f- for their children, like never um, cleaning up the rubbish in Palestinian neighbourhoods, never giving any money for funding, putting aside all the land for Jewish settlement and never letting the Palestinians build homes. One of the worst things they do is if a Palestinian leaves for a few months from Jerusalem, they can take his residency his way. Well, they just took, took, uh, or they're planning on taking part of a cemetery in Silwan, which they're going to turn into a playground. Before we move on from Jerusalem, I want to mention the enclaved uh, uh, settlement as opposed to top of the hills uh, settlement. The pocket style settlement ah. inside Jerusalem where ju- they just uh, occupy a roof of a building or an, uh, an apartment in a building where, uh, where that's Jerusalem style type of settlement. Yeah. Like they might take over one house in a neighborhood, mm. but that house becomes a center of hell for all the Palestinians. It poisons the atmosphere. Her. Because they, 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 they beat up the kids. They have these security soldiers everywhere, and they just turn life into hell. And it's, it's a horrible to see. I saw that. Yeah. I sat there and I watched it, and I saw families with young children. And behind the young children, they had secu- um, armed security in casual clothes. And every time I tried to talk to them, they wouldn't talk to me. And I only knew because it was pointed out that this is what's going on. Um, so, but you can see the Israeli flags mm. in these particular places. It's, it's horrible. And these poor Palestinians can't say or do anything. Mm. So the third uh, system that Israel created on Palestinians is the treatment of the Palestinians of Israel and the marginalization of Israeli citizens. Uh, tell us about uh, that, uh, Michael. That is, if you follow... Um Dante's Divine Comedy, that's one of the upper circles of hell. They're considered the more fortunate Palestinians because they actually do have Israeli citizenship. They're just um, subjected to a whole host of discriminatory laws, like they're not allowed to live in Jewish neighborhoods. Um, They um, are discriminated against when they try to go to university and things like that. And they're um, ritually insulted and bullied by the Israeli police by other Israelis and things like that. Like the um, Bedouin who live in the Negev desert, they don't get their um, villages linked up to electricity or water or sewage infrastructure because the government refuses to recognize them. And eventually they're driven out so that new Jewish communities can be built over the top of their, their villages. And uh, so those are considered the fortunate Palestinians. But Israel 
Israelis generally consider them as a cancer within the society. They're a pest. They yeah. vote. They have children. And they're a threat to Israel's um, just, just Jewish on the, essence. Just on the fact that they can vote. They can only vote for a Jewish state. They are not Jewish. So they yeah. have to vote for something that they are not and something that they don't want to be a part of. Just yeah. for everyone that says, you know, these guys can vote, they can only vote for certain things, mm. which is it's a Jewish state and it is going to discriminate against me. Yeah. And the, the Israelis over 70 years have made a distinction between citizenship rights and national rights. And the Arabs of Israel seems to be denied of their national rights because they are not part of the nation. Yeah. Whereas they are citizens, and this is a unique, fragile legal system that only Israel has. Uh, and how can that created. be okay? Well, that is the how question. How can that be okay? The fifth one is the uh, Palestinian refugees, and in denying them the right of return, mm. uh, and that is affecting pr- pretty much two thirds of the Palestinians around the world. Tell us uh, about the Palestinian diaspora. I think you'd be more of an expert on that than I am, but. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, they're living in refugee camps in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Egypt and places like that. Um, they're welcomed generally by other Arab people, even if they're not welcomed by the governments. Uh, a lot of them have to go to places like Saudi Arabia to find work. And their greatest dream is to return to their ancestral homelands. Um, but they've got very little prospect of that for the foreseeable future but it, because, you know, Israel will not be a Jewish state if the Palestinians go back home. But any, but any Jew in the world can make Alia. Uh, yeah. They don't necessarily have to be a full Jew, but they can make Alia and be sponsored to go and have a home. The government will pay for them to be there for a while on an interest-free loan that they don't actually have to pay back in the end. But a Palestinian that was born there who has genes that have been there for centuries can't set foot back in that place, yeah. but we're okay with that. Uh, and we all say that Israel's okay and that the Palestinians are terrorists. Yeah, And also it's worth mentioning that this is the silent other parallel Nakba, the, what, is, what has been happening with the Palestinians in uh, outside Palestine, especially in the Nicholas countries. And this is a term that made it uh, into Arabic discord, At-Tawq, dual At-Tawq, that is Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt. And you have uh, the Palestinians in Lebanon where they are denied accessing uh, basic uh, infrastructure like medical facilities, education, and, 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 and employment. And that there is a list of more than 70 occupations a Palestinian cannot even apply to. And the last of which is two weeks ago, they added nursing. Hmm. So if you are a Palestinian nurse, graduate of Lebanese universities, the system does not allow you to even apply for public or private, even private hospitals. So this is what this is the silent Nakba. And now we see what's been happening in Yarmouk and the expulsion of the expelled people and in the second and third wave of refugees. And we will come back to this. So this is a quick profiling of uh, of, of these five different systems that Israel imposed on us. Uh, now, Michael, just uh, we were touching base before talking about the embassy move and what it does to the Palestine people, but also, the, I suppose, the date being the Nakba date. Yeah, it's hugely um, significant, not only because of the date, which is rubbing the Palestinians' nose in it, 70 years, 70 years after their great catastrophe, but also because Israel has always said that the whole of Jerusalem is their capital. But the international community have always said that 
understanding that a Palestinian state is impossible without a capital in East Jerusalem. They've never recognized that. And now that America's moving its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, that international consensus is shattered. Already Guatemala, Paraguay and the Czech Republic have announced that they're going to follow um, America's lead. Do we care about those countries? I well, mean, they're not huge. I mean, is it a huge thing? It's the start of yeah, okay. the flood. I can see Australia doing it in 10 years' time yeah, okay. under Peter, Prime Minister Peter Dutton. Peter Dutton, oh, for sure. That. Imagine yeah. that. Yeah. For sure. You know, but now that consensus is shattered and it's more or less might have put the nail in the coffin of the two-state solution. And that is a huge defeat for the Palestinians and a huge victory for Israel um, that, you know, um, sh- should not be underestimated. And I think, you know, that is the significance today of Gaza's great march of return. Yeah, we're going we're to talk about that. So let, let's actually talk about that. Uh, first of all, tell us what the march is about, because it's, it's a little bit different than what a lot of the other protests have been. And then we'll talk about how uh, they're not killing, they're maiming, which seems okay. to be a, a state-sponsored directive. The thing you've got to remember about Gaza is 80% of its population are refugees from what is today Israel. Yep. They were, so there is a great big prison where they're keeping the Palestinian refugees. Um, the humanitarian situation there is dire because it's overpopulated and it's got a punitive blockade going and Israel's destroyed most of its public infrastructure. On so, purpose. Yes, On it's purpose. also taken about half of its arable land as a buffer zone among yep. the Israeli border. So what the Palestinians have done in Gaza is they've built their camp, five camps, on the border of the buffer zone and they've said this is the beginning of our great march of return. If Israelis have, if Jews from anywhere in the world have a right to go to Israel, we have a right to defend, to go back to the homes that our grandparents were. So just say that again, the march is saying... We have a right to go back to the homes and the lands we owned and our grandfathers were, were yeah. and grandparents were d- driven out from. And th- that's what the, the march is. Now they know that Israel will not let them through the fence. So they've, combi- um, they've confined their resistance to nonviolent, mostly symbolic acts of resistance. Yeah. Um, the trouble is Israel has reacted with extreme violence in this case because m- almost all Israelis are against the Palestinian right of return. Of course. Well, yeah. I mean, it ruins the state of Israel being a Jewish state. Yeah. So Including you know, the... Pa- uh, the uh, Progressive uh, Zionists. Exactly. Well, they wanted a two-state solution. That way you don't have to deal with Israel's original sin, which was the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. You can just say, look, let the Palestinians have their mini-state in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, and we'll have the rest and we'll live happily ever after. And that was possible. That's what Yasser Arafat supported Mm. in 1988 when he recognized Israel's right to exist. Trouble is, that's gone. That's been buried under 50 years of Israeli settlement a rigged peace process, and now the embassy moved to Jerusalem. Yeah. So instead of like licking their wounds and crying at each other's shoulders, the people of Gaza said, okay, we accept that. Now we're going back to the root of the problem, which yeah. isn't one state or two states or this or that. It's the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, and that's what they've yeah. done. Now let's, let's talk about the numbers, because 40 people have been killed, mm-hmm. and uh, one journalist unequivocally, six journalists were shot, but tell us about the injuries, because I know that you've done a little bit of research on yeah. this. According to the United Nations, Israel has um, no, no, um, two, 2,017 people have been wounded 
by live ammunition in these processes, but only 40 killed. Now, that's a very low number when you think of it. I mean, these are, you know... When, when we say it's a low number, I mean, obviously it's too many, but the fact is that they're snipers. Yeah. They have the best equipment in the world. Mm-hmm. They're not far out of reach from being able to shoot. Yeah. If they wanted to, they could have actually executed 2,000 people. Exactly. But exactly. they've chosen not to because... Well, according to Médecins Sans Frontières... Um, their um, doctors in the Gaza Strip say there's a huge number of amputations that had to reform. Yep. And what the medics in Gaza are reporting is the use of this new kind of like what they call the exploding bullet. Or dum-dums, what we call them in, uh, yeah. in Western countries. Yeah, that's what they called them in World War One, and they're illegal under international law. But they absolutely pulverize bone, tissue, arteries in the limb that's hit, requiring amputation. And it looks like the Israelis have deliberately chosen the strategy because if they did kill, for example, 2,000 non-violent protesters, even in the European Union and Australia, that would have to be an international backlash. Yeah, of course. It has to be condemnation. So what they're doing is they're trying to violently crush a protest, not by killing, but by maiming. Mm. So th- just as the Palestinians have changed tactics and are no longer calling for an end to the occupation or the end of the blockade, they're calling for the right of return. The Israelis as well have become more nuanced in the kind of violence that they're using against the Palestinians. Instead of killing them, they're turning them to, you know, a population of cripples. That, that's what's happening. And, you know, it happens and they don't have happens. the medical treatment. And, you mean, a lot of these people that have been shot, they need to actually leave to get the proper help. Well, there were two cases of, in the first protest in at the end of March. There were two Palestinians who needed desperately to go to Jerusalem to have their legs treated. And Israel refused them permission, yeah. so they had to have their legs amputated. And the reason they gave was because they took part in the protest. Yeah. Um, a non-violent protest, but they wouldn't let them through to Jerusalem to get their legs hmm. um, done in a Palestinian hospital for that reason. So that gives you an idea of... Not only the extreme violence used against non-violent protests, but you know the the um, precision of it, the, the ruthlessness of it, mm. if you like. Um, well, they also admitted that uh, every bullet they knew exactly where it was targeted. I mean, they tweeted that and they've withdrawn that. But the fact that we know that they're very, very well trained, they do have all the equipment in the world, and if they wanted to, they could shoot a twenty cent piece from a long way away. Exactly, mm. and the Palestinians are, are, are no threat to them whatsoever. It's a non-violent march. No Israelis have been injured, let alone no. killed. So it is a, in a way it's a massacre, in a way it's a different 21st century type. They're playing the media war as well as trying to crush yeah. it through violence. So well, unfortunately, we still hear the, the bad media reports that it, you know, that it was a Hamas-organised meeting, which it wasn't. It was organised by a young Palestinian in Gaza. Civil society. A civil society that just wants to go home to their indigenous land. Well, they call it a clash, clashes in the Gaza Strip. That's a misleading... So it uh, is. Non-violent protests crushed by live ammunition is not a clash. It's a massacre. Well, it's an execution or it's a hunt. Yeah, exactly. It's a hunt. Exactly. Michael, uh, the Palestinians seem to be uh, determined to continue. Uh, and that didn't seem to have stopped them. Yeah, I mean, that's the most amazing thing about the Palestinians after 70 years of Nakba. Uh, you know, even with this historic defeat over Jerusalem with America moving its embassy there, even after the amazing amounts of violence being used against the protesters in Gaza and 
you know, the people, the daily violence inflicted on people in the West Bank, they still keep rising up and finding new ways of resistance. And as long as the Palestinians keep doing that, they'll not only continue to inspire other oppressed people from around the world, Israel, they'll also remind the Israelis that no matter what superpower patronage they have, no matter how many tanks and nuclear weapons and yeah. guns and other arsenals they have, they will not win. They can't they be defeated. only win when the Palestinians give up, and the Palestinians are nowhere near giving up. And that, to me, is a very inspiring story. I guess uh, with this, uh, we uh, have come to the end of this week's episode of Palestine Remembered. We have touched on important uh, topics like the Nakba, uh, the 70th uh, anniversary of Nakba. We have also spoken about the five legal system that Israel has imposed or has been imposing on the Palestinians mm. around the world. We have spoken about the embassy move by Trump. We have spoken also about the great uh, return march in Gaza. It's action-packed. And uh, before we leave, we have to thank our friend and uh, commentator, Michael uh, Sheikh. And we are looking forward to talking to you in future episodes uh, as well. Thank you, Michael. Just a reminder that Michael was one of the people that got me very involved in Palestine and was one that I always used to talk to about and ask questions. Uh, And Michael also came up with the flotilla idea. And so he's a very, very good man. It's been an honor. Thank you. With this, we have come to the end of the show. Until we meet next Saturday, 9.30 in the morning, this is uh, Robert Martin, Yusuf Rimawi, and our friend Nasser Mashni, who's not with us today, and our guest, uh, Michael Sheikh, wishing you the best of time, and salam. Salam. Bye-bye. Salam.